welcome to Generational Wealth MD's podcast on financial freedom through investing in real estate. My name is Param Balatandapani. I'm a mom, radiologist, real estate investor, and mentor to others looking to start or scale their real estate portfolios. Thank you for being here today. The goal of this podcast is to provide you with inspiration, strategies, and insight so that you can stop trading your time for money and live life on your terms. If you love the episode, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Thank you so much, Brian, for being with us. Those of you who don't know Brian, I'm just going to do a quick introduction. Brian is with uh, Barth Calderon Attorneys in California, and his practice focuses on asset protection, estate planning, and business succession planning, which is awesome because in our community, we have physicians and high-income professionals, uh, most of who are building, scaling, starting or scaling their real estate portfolios. So um, I think uh, this is going to be a great talk, uh, Brian. Thank you for making the time. Pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, okay, so as far as asset protection is concerned, Brian, um, I always say this, and I'm sure you agree, it needs to be simple based on what where you are right now, but it also needs to be scalable, so that when you grow, you know, it easily grows with you. Um, and um, there are a bunch of tools that you can use. And it's like a spectrum going from umbrella insurance into LLCs, and then you have complexity within that. And then ir- irrevocable trusts. As some people use that for asset protection. And as you go along the spectrum, there's increasing complexity, increasing cost, increasing protection. And then you're also losing control when you get into those um, irrevocable trusts. But when you have clients, and I know that your specialty is personalizing asset protection for your clients, and you're trying to personalize their entity structuring, what are the factors that you take into consideration, Brian? And what do you look at when you're trying to personalize it for your clients? Sure. So um, that's a great question. And I say that really, my job is to make the one educate the client and make them aware of the context in which they exist, right? The risks that are potentially that exist for their assets, and then educate them on what asset protection is. And then from there, what my process typically is, is then getting to know the client situation, getting to know their assets, analyzing all of those things, analyzing their family situation, analyzing their trusts, analyzing their uh, their various real estate holdings, their business holdings, their cash, you know, and, and coming up and figuring out where all the pieces are on the chessboard. So the idea is we want to be able to come up with a snapshot of where, what the client owns and how they're situated, right? Do they have LLCs already, a living trust? Is, are the assets held jointly with their spouse? Is their second cousin on title to one of their rental properties, right? And so once we know where all the pieces are, then I can analyze the situation and come up with a set of recommendations. And they range from very simple things to things in many, in some cases were warranted more complex things, right? Like irrevocable trusts or like various holding companies or um, post-marital agreements, et cetera, right? And so um, the idea then is to then make the client aware of the universe of options, right? So here's option one, two, and three, and then given the client's risk tolerance and given the client's budget, then we can kind of figure out what makes the most sense for them. And the client could have the exact same asset structure, right? They could have the exact same types of assets, roughly similar net worth, right? Roughly similar, but the, the options that the client, one client may select versus another may vary again, because they have their own risk tolerances and they also have their own budget that they're willing to spend. So, yeah. And that's such an important point because, um, 
and I like the fact that you talk about giving them multiple options and then depending on their risk tolerance, they get to pick what makes the most sense for them, right? Yep. Factoring in costs and everything. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Although um, if I do feel strongly that a client should consider something, I will let them know. But the control is always in the client's hands, right? To kind of figure that out. But they are also paying me for, to some degree, my opinion, right? Yes, so, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, it, so a question most of our, uh, you know, most first-time investors have, uh, Brian, is always going to be um, umbrella insurance, you know, placing the property under umbrella insurance, especially if it's a smaller, um, you know, small multifamily or single-family home, uh, especially with single-family homes versus creating that LLC structure up front. And what do you have to say um, to that? Sure. So I would say that um, ultimately, if the client's making an informed decision, that's okay, right? You understand the risks and you understand the costs and the benefits of each option. And ultimately, if you're making an informed decision, then I've done my job. I've educated you, right? So, but I would answer your question with a different scenario, which is clients oftentimes come to me and they say, I have umbrella insurance. I have a $5 million umbrella insurance policy. Why should I engage in any other asset protection, which I think is maybe perhaps more relevant. Right. And so my response to that is that insurance is great and we want insurance, right? Any good asset protection attorney is going to encourage their clients to have insurance. Insurance Mm -hmm. is relatively simple. It's relatively, it's pretty cost-effective. Uh, And most people are at least somewhat familiar with how insurance works, at least on a surface level, right? Mm -hmm. And so asset protection, contrary to what some people think, is not, they don't work, they work in concert with one another. They're not mutually exclusive, right? And so so asset protection is designed to kind of work with the insurance. But before we go there, let's talk a little bit about what insurance does and what it doesn't do, right? So Mm -hmm. a lot of times people assume, right? that insurance is, okay, I'm shifting some risk from myself to the insurance company for a price, which is true. But what they then also assume in a lot of cases is, hey, I have a $5 million umbrella policy, right? MC Hammer can't touch this, right? So like uh, the the point there is that insurance, yeah, it, it does provide some protection, but it doesn't protect you from everything, right? And so if you, if you think about insurance, If you look at your insurance policies, right, page one and two may deal with what's covered, pages three through 15 may deal with what's excluded, right? And so these exclusions are typically born from lawsuits, right? They're born from, hey, uh, Joe policyholder had something happen to his property. He then uh, tried to get the policy, the insurance company pay. They ultimately had to pay, but decided they don't want to do that in the future, right? And so then they write, they exclude these in future policies. And so what happens is, what you tend to get are high liability, low probability events. And so if you have a situation that's excluded, then obviously your insurance doesn't help you. Another situation that pops up a lot of times is you might be covered, but the insurance company doesn't necessarily want to cover you, right? And so now you have to fight the insurance company to get paid while you're also trying to defend yourself in a lawsuit, which is not necessarily great. Thirdly, right, you may have a million dollar umbrella policy, but if you have a $3 million loss, right, then you have still have a $2 million problem. And so, so there are some shortcomings that come with insurance, right? And so, so insurance is really used in conjunction with asset protection. So like you were saying before, insurance is probably one of the first things that a client will uh, implement when they're talking about asset protection, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they should stop there. And so asset protection structures that we put together are designed to work in conjunction with the insurance. And how does that happen, right? So I would say that the insurance is kind of like uh, like the low-hanging fruit that a creditor can chase after. So think of it like camping. When you go camping, right? We were just talking about Yellowstone earlier. When you go camping, 
you don't necessarily want to put your igloo cooler in the tent because if the bear comes, you don't want the bear to come into the tent where your kids are. You want them, you want to keep it in a tree or on a picnic bench somewhere so the bear chases after it, right? So that's kind of like what the insurance is. It's the bright, shiny toy for the creditor to chase after. And then the various structures that we build, let's imagine we build a Kevlar, right, tent around our, our children, right? That creates a disincentive for the creditors to come after your valuable assets. And so that's the idea is push come to shove. We want to distract the creditor with the insurance and have them chase it. And then we want to protect our other assets. And then the other thing also is the insurance. If we have great asset protection, there may be situations where creditors that want to come after us can't get after our stuff. But if we genuinely did harm somebody, right, we may want to make sure that we have some liquidity to make things right. And that's something that's oftentimes overlooked is people assume, hey, if I built this great castle, I can just sit in the turret and, and laugh, right? But if yeah. we've genuinely harmed somebody, most people are moral beings, right? And they want to make things right. The asset protection allows us to be able to do it on our terms, and the insurance allows us to have the liquidity to be able to do it. So. I, I really love how you explain that. You're definitely a, a natural educator, Brian. Um, so another question that always comes up is, uh, so someone who's purchasing, so especially when they're using conventional mortgages, right? So they're purchasing an, uh, an investment property. The question is, when do I set up my LLC um, with the intention of you know, transferring it as soon as possible? But at what point do they start setting it up? And, and that's often in, in terms, um, it comes along with questions about the D1 sale clause, right? Sure. Yeah. So, so from a timing perspective, right, if you're, if you're going to purchase a property with conventional financing, so there's a distinction to be made between between conventional financing and commercial financing, right? So commercial financing, right? So usually if you're purchasing multifamily or commercial, right? Multifamily being uh, five units and above, right? Uh, then usually what will happen is the bank doesn't really care how you take title, right? Because, mm -hmm. so they will say, hey, no big deal. You want to form an LLC. We can invest title directly in that LLC, right? Commercial or a residential financing or personal finance, traditional financing, right? Uh, what happens a lot of times is the bank does not want you to take title in the name of an LLC. They will most likely want you to take title either in your name or in some cases in the name of your living trust. Mm -hmm. And so in those cases, the timing is not that big of a deal, right? Because so where the timing becomes more critical is that if the client's in escrow and they're saying, hey, I really want to close title directly in my LLC just because I don't want my name in the, in the chain of title, mm -hmm. right? So, so in those cases, right, if you're going to do commercial financing and you want to vest title right away directly into your LLC, I'd say you probably want to start a month or two before you actually um, close escrow, right? Just to make sure that you have plenty of time to get everything set up. If it's uh, traditional financing, then the timing is less critical because you're not trying to, you know, have everything up and running by the end of escrow. So let's just say the LLC is formed two weeks after escrow closes that's fine, right? Once it closes, then you just uh, execute a, a grant deed or a warranty deed to transfer your property from yourself as an individual or from your living trust into the LLC. Um, the other question that you brought up, was the, this whole question about the due on sale clause, which is something that's, it comes up a lot uh, with our real estate investor clients um, because most, uh, many mortgages include this thing called a due on sale clause, which basically says that um, if the title to the property changes, then the bank retains the right to change or to call the loan due. And so, so this is a concern, right? So a lot of times when people transfer assets into an LLC, technically, 
uh, a bank could conceivably try to call the loan due. Not so much so for a living trust. So, so one of the concerns that comes up is this, right? So when you transfer it into a living trust, there's actually a, a federal law that specifically exempts that from the due on sale clause. Uh, they don't, that law does not apply also to LLCs, which is why this concern exists, mm -hmm. right? And so, so what happens is, so technically the bank could try to call a loan due, but in practicality, it, it's very rare that that happens. And, and the reason is this. So if you think about the due on sale clause, the due on sale clause is primarily, primarily exists to protect the banks and to give them recourse in the event that you transfer the property to somebody that the bank didn't agree to lend to. So for example, let's just say in your case, uh, Param, you, uh, you, you seem like you have excellent credit. So I'm just going to assume, let's just say you have 800, uh, 800 credit score. The bank says, we love you, Param. You have great income. You have great credit score. We're going to give you a loan on very favorable terms. Here you go. You then turn around and you transfer that property to your second cousin, who's a deadbeat, and uh, he has a 580 credit score. The bank's going to have a problem with that, right? So they have that due on sale clause to protect them. And so let's just say instead that you took that property and you transferred it into an LLC that's wholly owned by you, right? Ultimately, who's still the owner of the property? It's you. Who's ultimately going to be responsible and incentivized to pay the, to pay the mortgage on that property? You. And so uh, because of that, the bank is very unlikely to have an issue with you transferring into an LLC. Again, that's either mostly owned or entirely owned by you. Furthermore, if you keep paying your mortgage, again, the, the likelihood that the bank would probably ever be aware of it, unless there's like a change of insurance or if they're trying to sell the loan, right? They're probably not going to circle back and, and ask any questions. Um, the other issue that comes up or the other scenario that clients sometimes bring up to me is, well, what if we're in a rising interest rate environment, right? Like we are today. What if the bank decided to be sneaky and said, we're going to call your loan due? We're going to use the fact that it's in an LLC now mm. and on a technicality, try to call the loan due to force you to refinance at a higher rate. The answer to that question is also, it's good thinking, but it's highly unlikely to happen because um, if we think about it in practicality, a bank, if they force you to refinance <laughs> under those circumstances, what is the likelihood that you're going to refinance with that same bank? The answer is zero. And in order for them to make any money, they have to do it to a lot of people, which means they're going to lose a lot of customers. Plus, it's terrible PR and banks have taken a big PR hit over the years. And it also opens them up to bad faith litigation. So for all of those reasons, it's very unlikely that the bank would ever call a due on sale clause due for the purpose due to the fact that you've transferred your property into an LLC that you are a majority owner of. Mm -hmm. In some cases, so our firm's been around for almost 40 years, okay. and we have a lot of real estate investor clients. We've never had a due on sale clause called on one of our clients by, mm -hmm. for the fact of them transferring it into an LLC that they own. Um, in some cases, every now and then the bank may ask questions. Usually we can explain them and they go away. Worst case scenario is if the bank really has a problem with it, you just pull the property out of the LLC and put it back in your name. So, Makes sense. But again, that's very rare. If you're interested in learning how to invest in long-term and short-term rentals the right way so you can accelerate to financial independence with the support of mentorship, community, and vetted investor agents and strong markets across the country, then get on the waitlist for the next cohort of Creating Generational Freedom at www.generationalwealthmd.com. 
You don't have to learn from decades of costly mistakes by yourself. The program is only open for enrollment in the spring and fall each year. In the last six months alone, our members have acquired over $60 million of real estate, and more importantly, they're living life and practicing medicine on their terms. You don't have to do it alone. Um, Brian, what happens if you purchase the, you've taken title of the property in your personal name and the mortgage is on your name and you transfer it into an LLC where you and your spouse are on the LLC? Does that tr- have any uh, implications or is it the same as transferring it into an LLC yeah. where you're a single or perfect? Yeah. Um, you did touch upon grant deeds and warranty deeds. So I was wondering if you could just um, quickly talk about how that's different from, say, a quick claim de- deed. In sure. Terms of so when you make those transfers. Yeah. So a quick claim deed is so. Grant deeds and warranty deeds are essentially the same, but they vary from state to state. So some, some uh, states call them warranty deeds, some states call them grant deeds, and then there's something called a quick claim deed. So a grant deed or a warranty deed is essentially makes a claim about the clarity of title. And so when you're, when you're executing a grant deed or a warranty deed, what you're saying is as the transferor, as the person who's transferring the property, uh, I am making a claim that the title to this property is good. Whereas with a quit claim deed, what you're basically saying is I make no representations about the clarity of title. I may or may not own this property. I am merely transferring what I own. And so, so it used to be that we used to use quit claim deeds a lot. Uh, in more recent years, uh, I find that we, when we're transferring assets, we usually will use grant deeds just because Title insurance uh, will oftentimes want you to uh, utilize a grant deed. And and it's easy to do that because I remember in Texas, they use warranty deeds. I think in California, we use grant deeds. When I wanted to transfer uh, property into the LLC, they ended up doing a limited warranty deed as opposed to like, you know, um, a a full warranty deed. And I I think that, again, it it has to do with transfer of title and um, title insurance. But um, so but in California, you could request for a grant deed and no issues with that. Yeah, that's good to know. Um, perfect. Um, Brian, could you also talk a little bit about corporate veil, right? Because a lot of our members, some of them, some of them DIY LLCs, but most of them obviously use attorneys. But again, even when you create that LLC for it to give you the protections that you wanted to, you need to maintain corporate veil, right? So what are the things that an investor needs to be um, aware of and make sure they're doing to make sure that um, they're in compliance and that LLC is providing them the protection that they, they want? Sure. And do you want me to briefly just touch on LLCs generally? And yeah, <laughs> and maybe even that holding LLC structure, because I think um, charging order protection, I was like hoping we could talk about that briefly, because sure. it seems to be very popular, especially in the physician investor space where everyone's trying to create those structures. And I know when we spoke, um, again, um, that was one of the options we talked about. So yeah. yeah. So so I'll start by talking about LLCs generally, right? So So one of the basic building blocks of an asset protection plan, especially one that involves investment real estate, is an LLC, otherwise known as a limited liability company, right? And so this is something that's very similar to a corporation. So if you have, if you've ever created a corporation or if you ever created an LLC, they're, they're similar, but they're also different, right? And so, uh, but the whole idea behind forming a corporation or an LLC, uh, one of the big benefits is we can create this corporate veil, right? Which is this protective wrapper that encapsulates the business, right? And so the the idea behind a corporation or an LLC is states wanted to make it, well, they wanted to incentivize people to create businesses, right? Because businesses create jobs and they grow the economy, right? 
So states basically said, well, one way that we can encourage people to create businesses is we can essentially allow them to create businesses that are separate from themselves so that if something goes wrong with the business, there's some liability within the business that the, this business entity, this corporate veil protects or keeps that liability in that box so that it, can't, it doesn't jump out and attach to the business owner's house, uh, personal bank accounts, other investment properties, et cetera, right? So that's a pretty cool thing. And so the LLC creates this protective wrapper. It is now its own business. So it has its own assets and liabilities and thereby, right? If there's any liability that belongs to the business, it can only attach to the assets of the business in most cases, right? And so that's one really powerful benefit of an LLC. So if you own five rental properties, right, you may want to create a several LLCs to hold those properties so that if one, a liability happens to one, it's not attaching to right, all the other properties. And so, um, so that's a one powerful basic benefit of an LLC. So, so the whole idea here is, is, again, we've created this corporate veil around the LLC and we, it's not enough to just have it, right? We also have to build good habits in how we maintain that LLC because the LLC is a separate business, right? It's not just me, right? So one way that a creditor will try to, what's called pierce the corporate veil or pop through that veil is they'll say, you know, uh, 123 Main Street LLC isn't really a separate business. It's basically just Brian doing whatever the heck he wants, right? Is kind of the idea. So what I want to do is I want to maintain that corporate veil and treat it like a separate business. So that's one important thing that when you're building out this real estate portfolio is you want to put on that hat of saying, hey, this LLC is different from me, right? And when I'm transacting with that LLC, I need to transact with it at arm's length. So what does that mean? That means that I'm not commingling personal funds with business assets, right? Assets that are in the business accounts are for the business, for expenses, for collecting rent, for making improvements to the property, right? If I'm going to take that rent, right? So let's say I've got $10,000 sitting in the LLC account and I decide, hey, I want to buy a, uh, you know, a product bag for my wife, right? I'm not going to pay for that out of that LLC account. I'm going to pull that out as an owner distribution, right? And then that money goes into my personal account and then I buy the product back, right? Another thing would be maintaining the corporate, uh, uh, the corporate uh, minutes, right? So if I'm doing, uh, if I'm making big decisions, right? I want to make sure that I'm documenting that. Uh, I'm having, if I, an LLC does not require annual um, member meetings where a corporation does, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you're not obligated to do it as a minimum floor to maintain the, uh, the corporate veil, but it's not a bad idea to do it, right? Because you do want to treat it like a business. Um, another thing would be tax deductions, right? So if you're taking tax deductions for uh, business expenses associated with the LLC, it's not a good idea to aggressively dump all of your personal expenses into that as well, right? That's another way to kind of muddy the water. Um, and so Uh, And the other thing is, or another thing to consider is you also want to be very mindful of when you're acting uh, or what hat you're wearing when you're taking action, right? So if you're signing a contract, right, you want to think, hey, am I signing this contract on behalf of myself or am I signing this contract on behalf of the LLC? If I'm signing that contract on behalf of the LLC, then I want to make sure that I'm signing it as Brian Chow, manager of 123 Main Street LLC, Right. If it's a personal contract, then I would sign it in my individual capacity. Right. And so, so those are 
um, some examples of things that we want to do to maintain that corporate veil. And so in most cases, you can think of each action as a grain of sand. And that grain of sand is getting placed on a scale, right? And if we're doing good things, good habits, we're putting it on the right side that's saying the corporate veil is, is good. And then when we're doing bad things, like again, commingling funds or spending person, you know, having personal expenditures out of corporate um, out of the corporate accounts, then we're making these uh, dropping little grains of sand on the other side, right? So usually, not one action is going to blow the corporate veil, but if you have bad habits over time, it's going to become it's going to make that corporate veil more porous, so that a creditor can pop through it. So. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for explaining that really well. Um, um, I wanted to hop on next to um, charging order protection and why a lot of investors end up creating the holding LLC structure. Um, and if you could talk a little bit about that, Brian. Sure. So um, so LLCs, the, the foremost reason why, create, why people create LLCs is usually for that corporate veil protection, right? So this is so liability flows in a couple different directions. One direction is it can flow from your assets to you. So this would be your classic slip and fall, tenant slip and fall, and now they're out for blood, right? So that's a tenant, right? So something, some liability is occurring with the asset itself, mm-hmm. and now they're trying to pop out and get to you. Another liability would be what's called outside-in liability. So liability that goes from you towards your assets. So that would be something like uh, I get into a car accident, or maybe let's say I get sued uh, you know, a doctor gets sued for malpractice, right? Or harassment or whatever, right? That's a liability directly to the doctor personally. And then the creditor is trying to go through that doctor down to his or her assets to reach them, right? And so that's what's called outside in liability. And so LLCs are, are good at creating that, uh, protecting our other assets from out, from inside out liability, right? So something happens on the property, the LLC is designed really to keep that liability in the box. Where the LLC is not necessarily designed to do is to protect the asset itself from outside in liability, right? So again, if I get sued personally, a creditor is trying to reach those assets. If I don't structure the LLC right, they may be able to reach those assets and foreclose on the property or seize the business, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and that's extremely important uh, when we consider that we live in California. So California LLCs, so not all LLCs are created equal. Some states have more protections than others, some significantly so. So California is a state that's relatively easy to break into, especially if the LLC is what's called a single member LLC. So a single member LLC just means that it's owned by a single person, or if you're a married couple, right, and you own 100% of it, also it, uh, it would be considered in most cases a a uh, single member LLC because California is a community property state, which means that husband and wife, when they got married, they essentially became one person. And we'll talk a little bit about that from an asset protection standpoint, probably a little later. But so the whole idea here being that a single member LLC versus a multi-member LLC, right? So one is owned by one person, one is owned by two or more people. There's a distinction to be made from an asset protection standpoint because states generally have a public policy interest in protecting innocent partners of a business. So the idea here being that, let's say me and uh, Parham, we own a widget factory 50-50, right? If I get into a car accident and a creditor can just seize my interest, my 50% interest in the company, Parham, she's innocent, right? But now she has to share ownership of that business 
with my creditors who probably know nothing about the business. They know nothing about widgets, right? They don't care about widgets. All they care about is forcing Parm to either buy them out or forcing Parm to sell the business so they can get their money and go on with their life. And that's bad for Parm. And that's bad for the business. That's bad for the employees of the business. And so, and that's bad for the customers of the business. And so states will uh, structure or states will provide protections to these uh, innocent third-party partners. So what happens is, is in that situation, right, most states will limit my creditors, right, to something called the charging order, the, their remedy to what's called the charging order. So instead of them being able to reach into the company and seize the assets, it, uh, instead of them being able to grab my share of the company and participate in the management of the business, instead of them being able to examine the books and records, instead of them being able to force money to come out, all the creditor can do in this case is to get a lien against my 50% interest in the distributions that come out of the widget factory. So widget factory LLC, right? And so the whole idea here is we want the, the state wants to preserve the integrity of the business for the benefit of Parham and any other innocent partners. And also because the state has a public policy interest in businesses not going bankrupt very easily, right? Or just having to shut down. Mm -hmm. And so the idea here then is the creditor can't force that money to come out. All they can do is wait for, with their hands out, like they're in a Oliver Twist novel, right? Waiting for the money to come out, at which point, let's say $1,000 comes out, right? 500 of it would go to Parham and 500 of it would go to my creditor in fulfillment of the charging order. But what does this all do, right? So the idea here, it really gets to the heart of asset protection. A lot of times people assume that asset protection is really about being bulletproof. And it's pretty hard to get to bulletproof, right? It's very expensive and time consuming to get close to bulletproof. But the idea here is, is what we're trying to do is we're trying to one, create a deterrence for creditors to come after us. And we're also trying to create leverage. So if somebody wants to come after us, if we can limit their ability to grab our stuff, it gives us more leverage to negotiate settlements that are more favorable in terms of time, effort, money, and expense. And so that's really the heart of what we're doing from an aspect. Yeah, yeah, I love it. And that's where Wyoming ends up being one of the states that actually offers, well, Wyoming, Nevada, and Delaware, but Wyoming gets picked most of the time um, for creating those holding LLCs, right? Right. So, and, and thank you for, for that, which is, right, so to finish my point, when we have a single member LLC, or, or the reason why we would choose other states let's say other than California when setting up uh, various uh, LLCs is because those states have stronger asset protection laws. And so uh, an example of that, as Parham uh, stated earlier, is there are a number of states that have very strong asset protection laws that will limit a creditor's ability to reach the assets within that LLC, even if it's owned by a single person, right? So the, so the idea behind a Wyoming LLC is to say, look, if I'm a single person, and I'm creating this real estate portfolio, I may not have an innocent partner that may help protect me. So it behooves me to utilize the law of a state that says, hey, even if I'm the sole owner and I get in trouble, I don't, it creates a lot of uncertainty as to the creditor's ability to break in. Even if you're multiple members. So let's just say in this case, it's me and my wife, right? If we both got in trouble or if one of us got in trouble and we didn't, structure it correctly, it may not matter because we're technically the same person, right? right. In community um, property states. And the community property state. Uh, and even if I had, a, a, let's say, somebody that wasn't my spouse, so let's say me and Parham, right? If we were both uh, partners in this widget factory and we both got in trouble for some transaction, right? A creditor could still conceivably reach into the assets. If let's say it was a California LLC, 
But if it's a Wyoming one, it's a lot harder for them to break into. And again, it creates more leverage. So yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And which is why the holding LLC comes into place. Um, so if, if someone were to have an LLC in say California, Brian, and um, it, fl- it flowed into their trust, then essentially you still have the same issues with charging auto protection, right? They can reach into it, even if it's held within a trust. That's correct. So uh, it depends on the trust that they own or the trust that owns it. But most people, when they create trusts, usually, not, let's just say 90% of the time, it's what's called a revocable living living trust trust. or a revocable family trust, right? And so this is a trust that's designed, for those of you who aren't familiar with trusts, uh, trusts, uh, these types of trusts are designed not for asset protection purposes, they're really designed for succession purposes. So the idea is in the event that I either die or become incapacitated, I want to make sure that all my assets are held in this trust, which kind of specify who controls these assets if I'm not able to make decisions. And ultimately, if I'm not around anymore, how do these assets pass to my loved ones and how do they pass, right? Do they pass to them directly? Is somebody going to manage them until my kids are old enough to responsibly manage it themselves? Or will these assets remain in trust for their lifetime so that if they, let's say, get divorced, right, these assets aren't mixed together with their, sp- with their spouse's assets, right? Things like that. So, so a trust for most, most common garden variety trusts are really designed for succession purposes. They really create no asset protection. But a lot of times people think that because they've transferred their assets into a revocable trust, that they're protected, that those assets are protected from the personal liability. The answer is no, it's not. And the reason why is because the trust is revocable, which means that the creator retains the right to change or undo the trust. And so if I can undo the trust and say, hey, I'm blowing up the child family trust, then the assets just come back to me and they're subject to my liability. So if I retain that big string to pull assets back into my name, a judge can then compel me to do that and thereby ex- expose those assets to my creditors. So, so if you own your LLC in a living trust, or if you own it in your name, from an asset protection standpoint, it doesn't really matter, right? The analysis is the same. So, yeah. so the fact that the, t- the big takeaway is if you have a revocable living trust, assume that it does no asset protection, it provides no asset protection benefit for you. Um, yeah, very important point there, Brian. Yeah. Now, in our community, and for those listening, uh, a lot of people, we have members from around the country, right? So I was wondering if we could briefly touch on series LLCs. I know like many of us are from California, and this doesn't apply to us. And California doesn't even recognize series LLCs, even if they're created elsewhere. But for, for say, someone who lives in um, Texas or Tennessee, um, and who invests in those states, can we talk about maybe the benefits of series LLCs? And, sure. Um, yeah, so a series LLC is basically an LLC that you can create like subsidiary components within. And so uh, it's a way to reduce some of the costs that are associated with setting up LLCs, right? So for instance, let's say that I bought five single family residences in El Paso, Texas, right? Each one of them worth $100,000, maybe 50% equity maybe each kicking off a thousand dollars a month, right? So it may not make sense for me to create uh, five separate LLCs to hold those properties because the costs of setting them up and maintaining them may be prohibitive, right? For five small properties. However, right, let's just say instead I create, so in many cases, right, we would just create one LLC to hold those five properties. And until we fill up that LLC with enough equity, then we just create a new one, right? But in this case, because Texas does specifically authorize 
um, a series LLC, then what we could do is we would then draft uh, or we create a series LLC and then have each one of those sub subcomponents own one of those small properties, right? So it's a way to create some additional barriers. It's almost like, uh, right, you can think of the series LLC as uh, one carton of eggs and then each, each little pocket that we put the egg in is like the series component, right? And so the idea is you're kind of separating within the box. Um, the, the drawback of a series LLC, however, is that they're relatively new and there's not a lot of case law um, interpreting how those protections will be applied. But the good news is, and so, so for instance, if we had 20, right, instead of five, let's say we had 20 single unit properties in El Paso, Texas, right? We might say, okay, we may not want to put them all into one big series LLC because mm -hmm. we don't know how the internal protections will, will be applied. But maybe we do three series LLCs and, you know, maybe we put uh, six or seven of those properties in each one so that um, if something goes wrong with one, even if the internal protections fail, we're only exposing a third of that portfolio, for example. So, right. Um, right. The other thing to note is if you are a California resident and you are utilizing a series LLC to, let's say, hold properties in Texas, you got to be aware that the Franchise Tax Board is basically going to treat each one of those subsidiaries as its own LLC. Yeah. And so they're going to want to get paid $800 for each one of those subsidiaries. Every so, year. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's just something to really be aware of uh, when you're investing out of state. That doesn't mean that you can't do it, but a lot of times it may not be worth the risk <laughs> to do you're that. You're probably better off just creating those individual LLCs yeah. in those cases. So, yeah. Yeah. Or, I mean, clients will make informed decisions. I mean, I, I will educate them if they, if, yeah. they, if they're not, if they don't want to register in California, in some cases they can at least minimize the likelihood that the franchise tax board will find out about it. Okay. Um, yeah. But, but they do have to be aware that, Hey, if they do find out about it, you are going to have to pay uh, the back uh, your franchise tax board taxes for previous years, plus interest and penalties. Right. Right, right. And, and I, I know that's a huge amount, right? When, when, I, when, when you factor in, it like thousands of ends up being thousands of dollars. And um, yeah. um, Brian, with those series LLCs, does each series need to have its own bank account also? I would, I would probably recommend yes. Yeah. Yeah. So. Right, right. And then we are getting more case law as far as those are concerned at this time, I'm assuming, right? So going forward. Uh, trickling out. <laughs> trickling yeah. out. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about other states, Brian, because uh, we have investors in, say, Florida, where to avoid transfer taxes, sometimes they are recommended, um, uh, the structure that's recommended for them includes land trusts. Do you have any opinion on land trusts? So I've even heard some attorneys recommend that for people in California to avoid FTB taxes. Do, do you have an opinion on, uh, on using uh, land trusts? Yes. Uh well, land so, trust and then DSTs and Nevada Asset Protection Trust, all of these, um, you know, here in this context. Um, what's your take on them? Sure. So let's go. Let's go one at a time here. So let's. Uh, all right. So give me the three again. So there was land trust first. Oh, land trust. Okay, that, let's that talk about land trust. to be more okay. a little more universal because even in say um, Florida, where there are transfer taxes, sometimes yeah. people are asked to use that, um, and then you know, yeah. Yeah, so let's start there. So the land trust is basically a trust which is designed primarily to hide the true ownership of the house, right? So a lot of times clients are like, 
right? They'll come to me and they'll say, hey, you know, do I really want my name to be on title to this property? I mean, yes, I want people to know that I own it just so that I have ownership rights. But I'm also, I feel uncertain that anyone can do a title search and figure out that I own this property, right? So how can I prevent that? So, so land trusts are a pretty popular way to do that. And what a land trust really is, you can think of it like your living trust, your revocable living trust with a twist. So the land trust is revocable, which means that you as the creator can change it whenever you want, uh, however you want. And, but usually when people create a revocable trust, they're also the trustees of the trust. So they're the managers. So they're the ones endowed with the authority to transact on behalf of the trust. So if I'm the trustee of my own trust and I put my property into that trust, usually, and especially in California, right, um, the county is going to want to see my name on the deed. So mm-hmm. when the property gets transferred, it's not enough for me to just say, you know, Brian Chow hereby transfers to the Chow Family Trust. They want to see who the trustee is. So it'll say Brian Chow transfers to Brian Chow, trustee of the Chow Family Trust, right? Okay. So it's still fairly obvious they own the property. Now, if we use a land trust, right, the difference between that and a land trust uh, and a regular trust is the trustee is usually somebody different. So let's say that I appoint Parham as the trustee of that trust. So then it would say, and let's say it's a land trust, so we won't call it the Chow Family Trust. We'll call it something a little more innocuous. We'll call it mm-hmm. the 123 Main Street Trust, right? Mm-hmm. So, so now on title, it says, right, Brian Chow hereby transfers to Parham, trustee of the 123 Main Street Trust, right? So now if, let's say I get into an accident and a plaintiff's attorney is doing an asset search to figure out what Brian Chow owns, right? They're not, my, my property is not going to come up in that search unless they do a lot of extra digging to go through the chain of title mm-hmm. to kind of figure it out, right? So, so that's the case, right? It creates some privacy, but then what we will also do in many cases is we will then assign the benefit. Oh, actually, before we go there, another important distinction or difference between the way that the land trust is drafted is that the trustee has no ability to take any action unless they're specifically authorized to do so by the beneficiary. So let's say I've appointed Parham and she's sitting on title to my property. Yes, she's the one technically authorized or uh, endowed with the authority to transact, but she can't actually take any action unless I explicitly authorize her to do so. So she can't just refinance my property without my say-so. She can't transfer the property. She can't give it away, right? She can't do anything with it unless I tell her to. And, and so what happens then is one, we've created some privacy, but then on the back end, what we do is we will assign that beneficial interest into an LLC or some sort of asset protection entity so that if a creditor wants to come after my house, right? Usually we do this with the primary residence, mm-hmm. right? So that if a creditor wants to come after my house, not only will it be harder to find, but once they find it, they still have to break into this LLC structure or some sort of asset protection structure. Um, how that works with what you were talking about in Florida, right? So Florida, if you're buying real estate in Florida, one um, kind of pain uh, that comes up in Florida is they have this docu- what's called a documentary stamp tax. Mm-hmm. And so basically what Florida does, keep in mind, so, so here's the thing, right? Florida doesn't have state income tax, so they got to get paid somehow. <laughs> and the documentary stamp tax is one way that they get paid. And so this is a pretty onerous tax, right? So basically they say, if you have a balance on the mortgage, right, on the property and you're transferring it into an LLC or let's say out of an LLC, we're going to levy a documentary stamp tax, which is essentially 
70 cents for every hundred dollars, something like that. So. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy, like right? That. So like mm-hmm. if you had like a million dollar, a million dollar mortgage, let's say, to keep the numbers even, it's probably going to be something like seven grand, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. um, and so it's a pain. It's it's like a giant payment, right? Just yeah. to transfer a property into an LLC. It costs more than a couple LLCs put together, right? And so yeah. um, so one way that clients will avoid the documentary stamp tax is they'll put it into a trust because that's exempt from the documentary stamp tax and then assign the beneficial interest into the LLC after the fact. So, yeah. Do you do you see people do that in California to in any way avoid um, those FTD taxes? Because uh, does, it, does it need to be owned by an individual for you to have to pay the FTD taxes when, you, when the asset is owned by a land trust? Does that change things? And is that a way that some people structure it in California? So the answer is, (laughs) so I haven't really seen people use land trust to avoid the franchise tax board fees, but what I'm assuming that you're asking is basically somebody is creating a land trust and appointing somebody who's not a resident of California as the trustee. Is is that what your understanding is? No, it almost seemed like the land trust, the LLCs flowed into the land trust and because the land trust was, uh, essentially owned those um, LLCs, then it did not have to pay the FTB taxes because it's only individuals who need to disclose it and pay it. Or um, this is this is one of the explanations that I've heard apart from the DSTs and Nevada Asset Protection Trust yeah, as I mean, a way. I, I, it smells it smells fishy to me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so so I would say that if you don't want to pay the franchise tax board fees, right? So so here's the takeaway with the franchise tax board which is if you are a resident of California and well, let's just say this, if you have California real estate in the LLC, you got to pay your 800 bucks anyways, right? right Cause it has right. to be registered to be business in California. Otherwise California is not going to protect you if something goes wrong. With yes. LLC, right. So let's start there. However, clients will purchase properties all over the country, right? Yeah. Tennessee, mm-hmm. Texas, Washington, Ohio, et cetera, Florida. And so, when a client purchases a property, let's just say in, um, we'll just say Middletown, Ohio, right? The property is in Ohio. The rent is being collected in Ohio. There's a property manager in Ohio. The bank account is in Ohio. The argument is, where's all the business being done? It's being done in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Great. However, the franchise tax board says, if you are a California resident and you're the manager, you're the person in charge of taking action on behalf of that LLC, and we consider you also to be doing a business in California, at least for tax purposes. So yeah. you also need to then register that LLC to do business in California, and you need to pay us $800 a year. And so for clients in that situation, many of those clients, some clients will just say, yeah, you know, it is what it is, cost of doing business, and here we mm-hmm. go. Other clients are like, this is a clear overreach by the state of California, and thereby um, we don't want to do that. We don't want to register in California. What can we do to avoid it? And so... What I will tell them is, well, if California finds out about it, they're going, you know, you're going to pay your back taxes and you're going to pay interest and penalties. If you're willing to take that risk, here's what you can do to minimize the likelihood that California will find out about it. So if you're going to create, let's say, an Ohio LLC, then my recommendation generally would be we want to structure it as a disregarded entity. So LLCs are kind of like stem cells. They can be, right, a stem cell could be a blood cell, a bone cell, a brain cell all sorts of things, right? So same thing with an LLC for tax purposes. So an LLC is very flexible from a tax perspective. So an LLC 
If it's owned by a single person, can be ta- will be the default is, is is it's taxed as a disregarded entity, which means that it doesn't exist for tax purposes. Um, which means that everything just gets reported on Schedule E of your income tax return, just like it is now, right? If you had owned it as an individual. The second option would be if it's multi-member, its tax default is its tax as a partnership, right? Alternatively, you can choose to, the LLC can also elect to be taxed as an S corporation. It can also elect to be taxed as a C corporation. And so, so if we're structuring this and we, and we are California residents and we're managing this LLC, then my suggestion is if we're not going to register in California, we want to structure it as a disregarded entity. The reason why is because, again, it, it doesn't exist for tax purposes. Mm-hmm. So any, any reporting that's done on this property is just showing up as if it was as if you owned it individually. And so for that reason, right, if California does an audit of your federal income tax return, there's nothing on the return to indicate that you that you have any foreign LLCs for them to ask questions about. Right. And so. Um, there's no K-1 that's being issued by the partnership. There's no separate corporate return that's kicking off income that they can question, right? And so uh, for that, uh, that is one way to minimize the likelihood that California will re- ask any questions about mm-hmm. a foreign LLC that you're operating. So if it is a Texas LLC and uh, Texas is also a community property state and um, both spouses are on it, can it technically also be considered a disregarded entity because both are community property states and they live in California? Yes. And so uh, so it would really be the owner. Right. So it, it would be whether or not it can be tax disregarded uh, or whether it, it's, it's not a function of the state in which the property is located. It's a function of the residents. Who the residents. It. Yeah, okay. because. Right. So in California, uh, my wife and I are essentially uh, absent agreement to the contrary, the same person. Right. Got it. So if we so if we bought property in New York, it does. Even though New York is not a community property state, it can still be taxed as a disregarded entity. Okay. The owners are a single person. Got it. Makes sense. So, um, and I just wanted to highlight uh, this point here, um, um, Brian. So in, in the majority of cases, the uh, LLC that you form that holds the property has to be in the state where the property is, uh, it, it, but the, in the state where the property is, right? And then you, um, if you do need to declare it, and if you live in California, then it would be registered as a foreign entity um, in California, correct? Kind of, yeah. So for sure, right? Where the the LLC, if the LLC owns real estate in a particular state, then it definitely needs to be registered in that state, right? Yeah. So, but it doesn't have to be formed in that state. So, right. So like I can create a Wyoming LLC that holds no Wyoming property, mm-hmm. but it holds a California property. So it needs to be registered in California, right? Cause the idea is it needs to be registered to do business in California because let's say my tenant's not paying its rent and my LLC is now trying to sue that tenant, right. Or evict that tenant. Mm-hmm. If it's not registered to do business in California, it has no legal, it doesn't exist in the California legal system. Right. So okay. um, same thing. If a tenant's trying to sue me, and it's just a Wyoming LLC, right? There's no protection. They're suing me in California court. If we're not registered to do business in California, there's no protection associated with that LLC, right? So, okay. And so, so then let's say I purchase another property in Texas under the same LLC, which I wouldn't necessarily advise in most cases, but let's say I did, right? Then I would also then want to register that LLC to do business in Texas. Right? Okay. 
But say someone lives in Tennessee and they purchase a property in Texas, then it's in their best interest to form that um, entity in the state of Texas. The LLC is created in Texas and that's all they need to do, right? Because they wouldn't necessarily need to register as a foreign entity in Tennessee. That's unique to California is my understanding. Yeah, so they're right. So California, oh, well, so the Franchise Tax Board is the most, probably the most aggressive taxing authority yeah. in, the, in, in maybe, maybe the history of the world. Um, <laughs> But, uh, and so, yeah, so they try to exert a very, uh, uh, they try to just throw their weight around everywhere. But yes, yeah. so, so if you are in a, re- a resident of another state that may not be as aggressive, then you, you can probably just get away with forming, let's say, yeah, a Texas LLC, even though you're a Tennessee resident, because Tennessee doesn't have the same you know, requirement when it comes from, yeah. Makes sense. But then for us, we could form... Uh, if the property is in California, you could form the entity in Wyoming. It just has to be registered with California, essentially. Uh, yeah. Give me that question one more time. So if someone, well, if someone has property in California and they say live in Texas, then is it in their best interest to form the property holding LLC in California and then just register? Well, that's all they would have to do, right? Yeah. Well, so if they wanted to minimize filing and compliance costs yes right they would just register because yes, otherwise they would have to if it were formed in texas then they would have to register with california so it doesn't even make sense yeah exactly so yeah. so so the reason why they might use another state is for asset protection purposes right so right so like let's say i was living in tennessee and i bought a you know a four million dollar fourplex in manhattan beach right with a million dollars of equity in it I wouldn't necessarily want to create a California LLC, right? And own it as a single member LLC. I'd probably mm-hmm. want to create a Wyoming LLC and mm-hmm. register it to do business. And register it. Got or it. tuck it underneath the holding company that yeah. was registered in Makes or, sense. or created in Wyoming. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah. Um, as far as liability is concerned, Brian, um, do you see any advantage from an asset protection standpoint for someone with, say, multiple properties to have a property management LLC as being distinct from the property owning LLCs? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So a property management LLC is just one extra degree of separation, right? Between uh, your actions um, and, right? So it's just another corporate veil to funnel your stuff through. Because if you're, especially if you're self-managing, right? Then let's say you take some action that's inappropriate as a manager that might subject you to your personal liability. And so, um, and then it may also make your bookkeeping easier, right? If mm-hmm. you just have one entity that's collecting all the rent depositing them to the various accounts. Um, so, okay. so, yeah. But even if you don't choose to do that and you have um, an LLC, say in Texas, and it's a single member LLC, um, um, if you're self-managing the property, um, it, you still are, you still are afforded the protections by the LLC. The liability doesn't extend to you just because you're managing the property. Yes. Yeah. So there, there should be significant protections, but again, if you, if, if you're taking personal action, and you hurt somebody that could still can potentially lead back to you. Right? Thanks. That makes sense. Yeah. Thank you so much, Brian. This was so informative. I learned so much and I'm sure everyone listening is also learning a lot before we let you go. Um, can you tell us how people can get in touch with you if they want to connect with you? Sure. Um, do you have, uh, well, I guess um, I'm happy to post my information in the chat. Um, probably the best way to get a hold of me is to email me. Um, and what I will typically do is I'll respond with a link to my calendar. So if you wanted to set up a quick phone call or a formal consultation, either by Zoom or by phone, um, you can just directly access my calendar and set time to do that. 
Um, would you like me to just post my information in the chat now or? Yeah, I could, I could put it in the show notes. Don't worry about it. Okay. I'll put it in the show notes. So, um, but yeah, and, and kind of my personal philosophy is um, I'm very relationship driven. So my goal is to, you know, find great people, develop great relationships with them and be a positive reflection of who they are and also um, do what I can to contribute to their success. So I hope that I'm a positive reflection of you, Param. Um, and for uh, members of your audience who reach out to me, um, I'm happy to set aside time to answer general questions um, and you know do what I can to be a resource, regardless of whether or not you've retained me. Uh, it's probably just a good for, opportunity for us to get to know one another. And uh, if it's a good fit, then maybe we can figure out ways to work together in a more formal context. So. I love that. I appreciate that so much, Brian. Yep. And it's so important because where people are today is going to be very different from where they're going to be a couple of years from now. And they yeah. need to work with someone who's going to you know, help make whatever entity structure they have scalable and just continue to work with them. So I appreciate everything you're doing. Thank you so much for making the time. 